So, Father God, we thank you for today. I thank you for the fact that you speak to us through your word. And, Father, as we look at your power, Father, we give you all the praise, all the glory for the fact that you supply that power to us. Lord, thank you for speaking to us in your word. Pray that you speak to us this morning. Pray that you use my lips, use my heart, speak through me, Father, and impress upon us the words and message that you want us to hear this morning. That as we leave this place, that we won't just be hearers of the word, we will be doers of it as well. And I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Christ Church. It's great to be here uh, this morning. As uh, Pastor Jamie alluded to, we are in the series Uh, No Escaping God, and we're looking at Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is a very powerful psalm, and this is the last week of the series before we turn our attention to a new series next week. You know, we really could spend weeks just on this one psalm here, Psalm 139. It's powerful. Because no matter what you're going through, no matter what issues you face, no matter where you are at in life, no matter what circumstances you have, Psalm 139 speaks to our hearts. I was at a banquet last evening with my wife, and a gentleman from our church came up to me and was appreciative of of this sermon series. Because no matter where you're at in life, Psalm 139 speaks to us, comforts us, guides us, gives us hope. It's a powerful psalm. He said he reads it often, not daily, but often. And my encouragement for you as we, as we conclude our time with Psalm 139 is not to, to not forget about this psalm, to memorize it, to read it constantly, to impress it upon our hearts. He was actually telling me that uh, there was a woman at work that was going through some tough times in life. Uh, she had just lost uh, a son going through some um, medical issues in her life. Also lost her husband as well, all within like one year's time. And what he did was he, he gave her a copy of Psalm 139. Because it speaks volumes. And we've, we've entitled this series, No Escaping God. Because as we look at God, we look at all the characteristics of God. The fact that he's all-knowing, all-present. And today we look at the fact that he's all-powerful. It's interesting, when you look at that graphic, No Escaping God... Uh, that graphic comes from Michelle Bender, our, who does our graphics here at the church. Uh, very talented. And I know before uh, this series started, she always asked, you know, Jared, what's your, what's your thought? What's your vision for this series? And the first thing I thought of before Michelle came up with that was, when I think of no escaping God, I think of like a prison cell. You know, and like having a prison cell and, you know, God's behind it or you're behind it somehow. And I thought, that doesn't really convey an uplifting message. <laughs> So I said, you know what? It's not about that. It's about the vastness. It's about the freedom. And so Michelle came up with this graphic. Why? Because once we give up our, our fight to flee from our relentless God, who is relentless, pursuing us, we understand that his intention isn't to harm us, isn't to make our life miserable, but to really bless us. See, in coming to know Him through these characteristics, which we've looked at, we really come to know ourselves. We really come to know ourselves through this. Since we can't escape God, church, since we can't escape Him, what is our response to that? What is our response? 
Our response is that we need to have inner purity. We need to have a holiness about us. That's the message of Psalm 139. You know, it's easy. Many people do. Many pastors would look at Psalm 139 and they would split it into three sections and kind of end it. They would end it at verse 18. Before you get to the last part of that psalm. And it's very easy to look at these three independent characteristics of God without looking at the last uh, stanza of uh, Psalm 139. As you read it, I know some of you even got a little bit like queasy or, or ooh, wow, that's, that's pretty tough language that David uses at the end of Psalm 139. And it's easy to break them out and separate them, but you have to understand, church, we can't understand Psalm 139 without understanding it as a whole context without understanding it as a whole context. Yes, we understand that there's three characteristics of God and that we can't escape them. But the idea here is, is that what do we do about that? What is our reaction? My encouragement as we go through there is you're going to see is that our reaction, our response to no escaping God is that we must commit to a life of holiness. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there. We're in Psalm 139. It's in your service sheets, but we, I want to look back at the last two weeks, quickly. So you can understand the four stanzas because they flow one after another after another. Two weeks ago, uh, John Guest was up here and we talked about the, f- the first aspect is that I can't escape God's personal knowledge or his omniscience. I can't escape his personal knowledge of me. And as you look at Psalm 139, it's, it's through there, all through the, the first few verses. If you have your Bibles, you search me, Lord, know me. He knows our actions. It says, you know when I sit down and when I, when I rise. You know my going out and coming in. You know when I lie down and get up. So he knows our actions. He also knows our words, doesn't he? It says in verse 4 of Psalm 139, Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. He also knows each and every one of our thoughts. He says, you, you, uh, when, you, when I sit down, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, it says in Psalm 139, verse 2. God knows us. And, and John talked about the idea that, that the most intimate relationship we can, we can have here on earth is often with our spouses. To know, you know, the verb to know is used uh, with Adam and Eve as an, as an intimate relationship. And we go through life, and as many of us have been married for a long time, we're still finding out more things about our spouses, aren't we? It's always amazing as I talk to people that have married 40, 50 years, you're still finding out more about them. What's powerful is that God already knows everything about us, no matter how long we've lived with them. I found out something about my wife this week that was uh, amazing. Deb and I have been married for uh, a, a number of years, and... Uh, <laughs> 15. And uh, we, got a, we got a note coming home uh, from her school asking if we'd be open to having our son tested to, to see if he'd have some advancement opportunities. And I thought, well, that's terrific. An IQ test. I said, I've never had an IQ test. My wife said, oh, I've had one. And I said, you did? Well, what'd you get? Now, let me say, let me preface this by saying <laughs> a normal IQ, okay, a normal IQ is between... 90 and 109, okay? Average is 100, okay? Anything 109 to 119 is considered superior knowledge. Anything from 119 to 139 is advanced knowledge. 
advanced superior knowledge. And anything over 139 is considered genius level or above. So I said, well, Deb, what'd you get? She said, oh, I got a 142. And I went, I married a genius. <laughs> and immediately, a selfish arrogance came over me and I went, a genius thought it would be beneficial for me to be married to her. And I could see on her face looking at me going, I didn't tell you that before because I don't think that I made the smartest decision when I married you. You can't even dress yourself in the morning. But I've known Deb 17 some years, even before we were married. And I finally find out this information. And it's powerful. What's amazing though is that God knows everything about us. We can live together with somebody for 50, 60, 70 years and maybe never know everything about them. As it says in Psalm 139, God knows everything about us already. Our words, our actions, our thoughts, our thoughts. Therefore, as David said, where can I run and hide? You already know everything about me. You know, if you think of you think of the Garden of Eden, you think of Adam and Eve, who really were the two people that enjoyed open intimacy in front of God. They were, they were naked, they weren't ashamed. Well, what, was, what happened when they sinned? What was the first thing they did? They went, they, they hid. And they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves because they were ashamed. But then what happens? God, what? Pursued them. He came after them. And what did he do? He had to slaughter an animal. Blood had to be sh shed so that he could use their, that skin from that animal to cover them. What a great object lesson for us. That nothing was ever going to separate us from him. The fact that we sin and he's holy. He can't be around sin. So what does he do? He sacrifices. Animal sacrifice. Then he sends his son, the ultimate sacrifice for us. So that we can have a relationship with him. No escaping God. A relentless pursuit. A relentless pursuit of us. It's powerful. It's powerful. You have to understand as when we come to know the Lord Jesus as our personal Savior, when we accept that substitute, we have that intimate relationship with him. It's a personal relationship with a living God. It's not about, it's not about rituals that we do. Not about certain actions that we do that we can come to know Him. Because He's holy and He can't be around sin. So therefore, a sacrifice had to be made. And we have to come to know and believe and accept that sacrifice. Confess our sins to Him. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only way to come to Him, the only way to have that relationship is to accept that and trust in Him. So, the first aspect of Psalm 139 is I can't escape God's personal knowledge. So that leads into the second, the second stanza, the second part of Psalm 139, which David alludes to, is I can't escape God's what? Presence. I can't escape God's presence or his om omnipresence. Dr. Ed Glover was here last week and he talked about the presence of God being all around us. Being all around us. We can't see it, but we know he's here. He talked about the Soviet cosmonaut who went up to space last week, and when, when he was up there back in the, uh, the 60s, came back and said, 
I don't believe in God because I can't see him. Ed Glover talked about the fact that you, even though you can't see him, you know he's here. You know he's here. You know he's around us. So I can't escape God's personal knowledge of us. I can't escape God's presence. And it really leads to our, our third point today, that I can't escape God's power. I can't escape God's power. Or the fact that he's omnipotent. If you have your Bibles, starting in verse 13, it says, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the ways, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts. Oh God, how vast is the sum of them. Where I count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. That's a powerful song. That's a powerful thing, knowing that, you know what? He knit, he knit us together. He knows us. He's all-powerful. Everything about us. And that He's ordained all, that, all of the days of our life. He ordained for me. You were written in the book before one of them came to be. He's all-powerful. That's comforting to, the, to us, isn't it? No matter what season that we're going through, no matter what circumstance we have, we know that God's in control. He's not sometimes sovereign, church. He's not sometimes victorious. He's all the time victorious. He's all the time in control. I love what Jeremiah says. It says, the Lord shall not turn back until he has executed and, and accomplished the thoughts and intents of his mind. Boy, does that give us a peace, doesn't it? No, he's in control. He knows everything about us. He's ordained our lives. I was talking to a woman last week after the, the service. And she had just gone through a, a, a tough loss of her job. Just lost her job. It was a sudden thing. She didn't know it was coming. Lost her job. And she said, Jared, I don't know how I'm going to pay my next bills. I don't have any other job lined up. She was in her uh, late 60s. So she's saying, I don't know who's going to hire me at this point. There could be a lot of fear there. There could be a lot of anxiety there. But she said, boy, do I have a peace about it. Do I have a peace? And I said, you have a peace? She goes, absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Because God knows me. He knows what I need. He's with me. And he's all powerful. He has everything that I could ever need in life anyway. I shouldn't have to worry about it. He will provide for me. And I thought, man, if that doesn't speak to us. If that's not what Psalm 139 is all about, knowing that he's in control. He's involved in this world. You know, last week, Ed Glover talked about the idea that God, he's present, but he's not like in the rocks, and in the trees, because that's pantheism. This is also not a deistic religion either. A deist would say that, that God created the world, but he's not involved in the world. Okay, that's a different kind of religion altogether. He's, he created the world, but he's not involved. It just runs on its own. There's no natural thing that he... Everything's natural. He doesn't intervene in anything. And that's not what we believe. And that's not what it's saying here, is it? Not only does God create everything, but he's involved in everything as well. He knits everybody together in their mother's womb. He knows everything. And he's involved. He's sovereign all the time. 
When we understand that, we, give, we have such peace knowing that He is in control. No matter what event's going on in life, even the smallest things take on such significance because we realize this is a trial that He's putting me through and I'm going to come out stronger on the other end. When I met with that woman out in the commons last week, she said, listen, this is just a trial. This is just a trial. My trust, my faith is growing because I know he's in control. He, he's in control because he made everything. And not only did he make everything, church, what's powerful is that he made it perfectly, didn't he? He made it perfectly. You look at verse 13, it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. You know, one of the things I love here, and once one of the passages we use when we talk about choose life here at Christ Church. We are very pro-life here at the church, and every January we focus on that. We focus that every child, every, every human being is perfect and has significance. I was This past week I was uh, blessed to be at our Young Lives uh, Banquet ministry that we support here at the church. And it was powerful to, to see those young girls who decided not to have an abortion, but to choose life. It's a powerful ministry. And we want to support that. Because they recognize that that, that that child inside of them is something that God knit together. It's perfect. And God's got a plan for them. So it's powerful to look through that. It's powerful to be there with them. A few weeks ago, we had a, uh, there was a retreat for Rachel's Vineyard, which is for folks who, who have gone through an abortion, who are really struggling through that. Another ministry we support here at the church. It's wonderful that we as a church can support that. And we get that from this passage right here. God has everything in his hands, that he knit us together, and that he made us perfectly. And then it says in verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Fearfully there is another word for to cause astonishment and awe. We are held in awe. We are fearfully wonderfully made. You wonder why he loves us so much. The same reason that an artist loves a painting or that a boat maker loves the boat that he made. We are his workmanship. We are his craftsmanship. He loves us because he designed us. That's why Ephesians 2, 10 says, For we are God's what masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ. Jesus, so that we can do the good things that He has planned for us. We are God's masterpiece. You know, oftentimes we, we go through life, and many of us are struggling with, even now with insecurities, with saying, you know what, I'm not designed a certain way, or I, I, I don't have the right training or right abilities. We are God's masterpiece. It's interesting that David wrote this. I wonder what was going through David's mind when he was going up to Goliath. Can you imagine if David was up against Goliath and going, you know what, I don't look like him, I don't stand like him, I can't fight like him, I'm not as big as him? Forget it. No. He goes against Goliath because he knows God's power is going to work through him. That God made him perfectly. He's not bigger, he's not stronger, but with God's power he will be. 
So oftentimes we look at our own lives, our own deficiencies, and go, you know what, God can never use me. He can never use the gifts I, I've been given. He can never use me to influence my spouse, my family member, my child. He could never use me in my workplace or with my family. He could never use me in the church because I don't have the right abilities. I don't have the right gifts. I don't have the right education. Jared, I can't be up there and speak and, and do what you do. I cannot be effective because I don't have the right abilities to do so. And that's, this is furthest from the truth. God's saying, you're fearfully, wonderfully made. I've ordained the whole thing for you. And I'm going to use you. But oftentimes we, we kind of come up with excuses, don't we? Well, I don't have enough time. Or I don't have the right abilities. Or no, somebody else will talk to them. I, not me, somebody else. And I always think of this when I think of Moses. I think of Moses. You remember the story of Moses in the Old Testament? Moses was a, a man who uh, didn't have much going for him at the time. He was tending his father's father-in-law's sheep, not even his own sheep. So he was kind of in a job. He didn't probably have a whole lot of money because they weren't even his sheep. He was tending his father-in-law's sheep. Shepherd, which was a bit of an outcast then. He also claims that he was slow in speech. So what happens? He's out one day tending his, his father's sheep. He also kind of had a, a, a rough past because he had, he had killed somebody. He killed somebody. So you got to be figuring that Moses is thinking, there's no way God could ever use me. What happens? He's out tending his father's sheep, and he sees what? The burning bush, right? He sees the burning bush. It says in Exodus 2, there was an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of a fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it didn't burn up. So you remember this bush is on fire, it doesn't burn up. And out of the bush comes a voice to Moses and said, Moses, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. I'm going to use you, Moses. And what does Moses say? He gives an excuse, Moses 4, Exodus 4.10. Moses said, Oh Lord, I, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow in speech and tongue, says Moses. So God, I don't have the right abilities. I do not have the right gifts. I can never be used. You, I, I can't do this thing because I do not have the right abilities. Some of us sit here and go, I do not have the right education. I don't have the right abilities. I don't have the right job. I don't have enough money. I don't have a good career right now. I'm not in a good place. I don't have a good marriage. My family is falling apart. My kids have gone astray. God, you could never use me. I am not usable right now. What does the Lord say? He responds in verse 411. It says, the Lord said to him, who gave you this mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? No matter what deficiencies you have, no matter what inabilities you think that you have, God made you. He formed you. And he can use you no matter what deficiencies, no matter what inabilities you think that you have. He says to Moses, I can use you. It's the power going through you that I can use you. It's the power going through you that I can use you. I can use anything. Think of the bush. The bush, it wasn't an extraordinary bush. It was a normal, everyday bush that was on fire. The bush didn't burn up. There was nothing unique about the bush. The fire was unique on the bush. 
It was the power of God in the bush that made it remarkable. Any old bush would have done. God is looking for bushes, people that are burnable. People that say, you know what? God, you're, I'm fearfully, I'm wonderfully made. The power that you can give me to be effective is, is awesome. I may not have the right abilities. I may not have the right gifts. I may not have the right experiences in life, but I know that I'm fearfully, I'm wonderfully made and that you could use me. It's the power of God working through us. Power of God working through us. Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and the incomparably great power for those of us that believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength. J.B. Phillips says, how tremendous is the power available to us, to those who believe in God. When we make firm our connection with God, his life and power, what? Flow through us. God's going to use you. The gifts that you have, the abilities you have, as insignificant as you think they are, God is going to use them. Why? Because His power makes things incredible. And because you're fearfully, you're wonderfully made, you're perfect already. That's what's powerful. So we understand from Psalm 139 that we can't escape. We can't escape His knowledge of us. We can't escape His presence. We can't escape His power. So what do we do about it? I once knew a preacher who would always end his sermons with, so what? So what? He wasn't trying to be irreverent, but he was trying to convey the idea, so what? What do we do about this? What do we do about this this understanding, these characteristics that we have of God? If I can't escape God's presence, if I can't escape God's personal knowledge, if I can't escape God's power, therefore, I must commit myself to holiness. I must commit to myself to holiness. The more we know about God, the more we understand more about ourselves. I must commit to holiness. Look at the last stanza. This is the fourth stanza, verses 19 through 24. It's powerful. There's some tough, tough language in there as you look at that passage. Some tough language. It says... If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are rebellious against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. So David, after understanding God's God's perfect power, perfect presence, perfect knowledge of us, then goes into asking God to destroy the wicked. Because he sees the fact that God takes sin very seriously. Then he moves into a prayer. God, search me. Search me. If there's any ways about me, search me, test me. David wants to root it out. So we must commit to holiness. First thing, holiness means we live apart from the wicked. We live apart from the wicked. You know, when we look at that, that passage, I think we get a little uncomfortable because we think that we as Christians shouldn't hate anything. We should love everything. But Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to, to hate evil. I hate pride. I hate arrogance. Evil behavior. Perversive speech. We can't love God properly and be complacent about sin. 
We love the people. We hate the sin. It was Spurgeon who said, to give some clarity, said, to love all men with benevolence is our duty. But to love any wicked man with complacency would be a crime. To hate a man for his own sake or for an evil done to us would be wrong. But to hate a man because he is the foe of all goodness and the enemy of all righteousness is nothing more or less than an obligation. The more we love God, the more indignant shall we grow with those who refuse him with their affection. We love the people. We hate the sin. Holiness means we, we live apart from them. We still love them, but we're not going to be drawn into their, their wickedness, into their sin, into their lifestyle. We reach out to them with the message of Jesus Christ. So we must commit to holiness. It means living apart from the wicked, but it also means living openly before God, doesn't it? David says that prayer, and then he moves right into saying, God, search me, test me, know me. In coming to know God, we come to know ourselves. Holiness means living openly before God. 1 Peter 1.14 says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who has called you is holy, so holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy for what? I am holy. I am holy. Our response is a life of holiness. Life of holiness. Search me, try me, be holy for I am holy. I love... Story. I love John the Baptist in the, in, the, in the Bible. John the Baptist was the one who preceded Jesus, who kind of led the way for him. And John the Baptist was kind of a rough guy, wasn't he? It says that he wore clothes of camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. I can imagine him being this tough guy, this rough man. Probably didn't have a whole lot of friends. He probably, his face probably wasn't clean-shaven. Kind of a rough-looking guy. He had hundreds of converts. Why? How do you explain it? It wasn't his charisma. It wasn't his money. It wasn't his position. It wasn't even the unique abilities that he had. What did he have? One word, holiness. Holiness. Try to live a righteous life. Some of us are so filled with anger, envy, hate, pride. Obsessed with money, obsessed with women, addictions going on. We need to live differently. Why? Because we can't escape God. He knows us personally. He's with us. And we're seeking His power to move through us. Be holy, for I am holy. So first, we, we must constantly expose our inner life to God. Verse 23 says, search me, test me, it says. Search me and test me. David's asking God to search me. Search the inner parts of my life. Whatever those things are, you already know them. Search me. Let me root it out so I can live a holy life. That's why we have a time of prayer here every Sunday. Confessing our sins. Root it out of us, God. So we can live a holy life. Secondly, we yield to, we constantly yield our whole lives to God. Verse 24 says, lead me. Not only test me, not only root it out. If I want to live a holy, holy life, i got to root it out. But I also, you also have to lead me, God. I need to seek your face everywhere I go. I need to look for opportunities where your power can flow through me so that I can be effective with the gifts and abilities you've given me because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. 
John Calvin wrote, It's certain that a man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. And then descends from a contemplating him to scrutinize himself. That's what David's saying here. Look upon God. He knows you. He's with you everywhere you go. He has you wondrously created and sovereignly ordained the days of your life. So therefore, our response is to scrutinize ourselves by inviting God to search our hearts. Search our hearts, our thoughts, our feelings, and yield yourself to obedience in all ways. In coming to know Him, we come to know ourselves, church. As we look at Psalm 139, in coming to understand His characteristics, we come to know ourselves. Because because I can't escape God's knowledge. I can't escape His presence. I can't escape His power. Therefore, I must commit to holiness. I must commit to living a righteous life. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for today. I thank you for the fact that we are fearfully, wonderfully made. Father, that you, you've knit us together so uniquely. I give you praise for that, Father. Father, I thank you for using us. Father, I pray that you do impress upon us how you can use us in our workplaces, in our family life. in our marriages, in our businesses. Father, use us mightily. Help us to not feel any inadequacies, any deficiencies. Help us not use that as an excuse because we know that we are fearfully, wonderfully made. And Father, I thank you for this series, for teaching us through this series that you know everything about us. You pursue us. You're all around us that you're sovereign in all ways. So, Father, thank you for pursuing us. Help those of us who are still trying to run and hide to, to give up the fight. Come to know you. Have a relationship with you, Father. And in doing so, Father, that we commit to living a righteous life, a life of holiness. Not because we have to, but because we want to and need to. I thank you for today. I ask that you be with us in the days ahead, and I ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus.